0: Good morning. If you are new here, we are glad that you're here. If you are visiting, equally glad that you are here. This is a great place to come and get your questions asked and answered about the Christian faith. And we are glad that all of you are here. To give some context to where we are, we have been studying a letter Paul wrote to the churches in what then was called the region of Galatia. That's now a part of Turkey. And we have been studying that book for a few weeks. We are now into the second part of the second chapter. So if you will turn to the bulletin that you have got, one of the panels has the relevant scripture reading for us to read along with together and to help us with that, Kathy.
1: From Galatians 2, verses 11 through 21. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord.
0: To give some quick context to those of you who are newer, Paul has encountered some false teachers from Jerusalem who have come to this region of Galatia and taught that what Paul was teaching and what Paul called his gospel was actually wrong. Paul's gospel, as Paul had taught it, was that Jesus had done everything we need to be acceptable and beautiful and delightful to God in his life, death, and resurrection. All we need to do is receive it by faith. Faith is enough. But these people who'd come from Jerusalem, they were claimed to be Christians, but they were also of Jewish background said, no, faith is not enough. You need to add to faith in Jesus something more. In this case, adherence to certain Jewish laws, circumcision, and probably based on this passage, Jewish dietary laws that were in the Old Testament. And you needed to add these to faith in Christ, to become a mature Christian. And so here in some of the densest, some of the more difficult, and easily some of the most important verses in the entire New Testament, Paul says, let me be clear. Faith is enough because of what Jesus did for us was enough. What Jesus did was enough, is enough, and will always be enough. Faith is enough because faith justifies you before God and because faith unites you to Jesus. For these two reasons, faith is always enough. Paul wants to make two points here that you can break this passage up in a zillion ways. I'll, for simplicity's sake, break it into two. Firstly, Paul says, and it's the first two paragraphs of your bulletin, he says, don't add to the gospel. In the third paragraph, he gives our second point, which is go deeper into the gospel. Don't add to it, go deeper into it. That's what Paul's saying here. Let's look at that first point, don't add to the gospel. Your first two paragraphs. Paul here is describing a confrontation he had with the leader of the Christian church. It's called Cephas in verse 11. That's another name for Peter. Peter is one of the leading apostles of the church. Paul says he confronted Peter because in Antioch, Peter had stopped following the teaching of the gospel. Paul knew that the gospel says that everyone is equal in God's eyes, but he'd stopped, stopped treating everyone as equal. Out of fear to this group of Jewish Christians from Jerusalem, out of fear, he caved into their pressure. They had argued you need to separate from non-Jewish people and you need to adhere to Jewish dietary laws. That means you can't eat with people who don't eat kosher. Ancient Jewish purity laws in Leviticus 11 said this is what you can and what you can't eat and you need to stay clean, quote unquote. Now Peter didn't deny the gospel message. He didn't Disagree that all you need to be a Christian is to have faith in Jesus. That's all you need. Peter did not deny that with his words. Rather, with his actions, he functionally denied that gospel truth. Because in his actions, he made his words a lie, he made himself a hypocrite, and he made the gospel look wrong. You see, the church was divided by what he did. People followed Peter. Jewish Christians followed Peter and stopped eating with the Gentiles, and you had two churches. Two completely different churches starting to meet based on a division of race. You had a Jewish church and a non-Jewish church. Even Barnabas was led astray. So Paul challenged Peter quickly, and Paul said, Peter, you're not living in line with the gospel. Your actions don't line up with your words. In fact, your actions are actually preaching a different gospel to the watching world. And though you publicly, with your lips, express correct gospel doctrine, your life preaches something far different. And your life preaches it more persuasively than your words. Now we should stop and note just a couple of things here. Firstly. Enter the moment, pretend you are a non-Jewish convert to Christianity, and you are seeing this happen. And, and Peter and these Jewish people are going off by themselves and having their own you know, special Christian meetings. Do you feel that in the same way Peter meant it to be felt? Peter was figuring out how Jewish Old Testament theology worked with this gospel stuff and what what in the Old Testament had stopped and what continued. You didn't know all that stuff. You felt like a victim of racism. You felt like they thought they were ethnically superior over you. Now, as far as we know, Peter never said anything that we know of that was racist, but scholars admit that into the Jewish mindset back then these religious laws had embedded a kind of sense of ethnic and cultural superiority, a kind of religious racism. Now, two weeks ago, I used an illustration of Incredible Grace, where a white police officer who had killed a young black man in his own apartment, had been sentenced to murder, and at the victim impact statements, a black man who was the brother of the deceased had forgiven this woman completely. It was astonishing and beautiful. Now the problem is that our present cultural moment in North America, particularly south of the border, is one of highly polarized racial tension. It's one of a clear historical pattern of judicial injustice to people of color. The courts have not treated them the same way they treated the white culture. And there has also been a historical tradition of white people excusing crimes against people of color. And in that context, that act was even more astonishing and beautiful. But the response of the culture was, if you're a white person, never take this act of forgiveness in isolation, but always surround it with the truth of the discrimination and the oppression that surrounds it. Now, I wasn't sure what to do with the expectations of that culture. And I didn't have a lot of time in my sermon. So I, as a white person, simply told the story without the context. And some people in our congregation said, what you have done by your silence is you have made some people wonder if you are complicit in white privilege and diminishing the role of injustice to the people of color, whatever your intentions, your actions may have been construed that way. And I thought, fair comment. It's the same point Paul is trying to teach Peter. I I didn't mean that, and if that was sent to anyone, that was not my intention. I certainly did not mean to lessen the issue of racism, but this is what Paul is trying to teach Peter. Sometimes whatever your best intentions are, you can act in ways that seem to repudiate or distort the gospel you say you believe. And you need to be cognizant of that. This one was really obvious. Peter knew. That in the gospel, everybody is made in God's image. That in the gospel, everybody is equally sinful and selfish and fails God's standards. And Peter knew that everyone who is a Christian is equally a recipient of God's grace. We're all equal. We're all equal. We're all equal. And yet his actions preached that we're different. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves is, is your life which is the best sermon you have, is your life in accordance and in line with the gospel you believe if you're a Christian? Are you living in a way that's consistent with the beliefs you have? Are you treating people with absolute equality? Are you loving your enemies as Christ called you to do? Are you wary of the power of money and power to seduce you as Jesus told you to be. Second application, if there are skeptics and a skeptical world which says to the church, you tell me you believe in Jesus, but you act in ways that are inconsistent, we need to learn to own some of that. The church has been guilty of racism as a general rule in many parts of the world. We have fallen into the trap of the culture, and we need to own that. The culture needs to own it too, but so does the church. Now, that's the first thing to note. Our actions can preach more compellingly than our words. Paul is actually saying to Peter, you're preaching a different gospel. Not by your words, but by your actions. But there's a second thing I want us to note here about what Paul does, because what Paul does when he goes to Peter is he does the opposite of what our culture does. Our culture, faced with a situation like this, would have gone straight to Peter and gone, you racist, shame on you, and heaped scorn upon him. Twitter would have exploded. He would have been eviscerated in social media. He would, the, the, he would have borne the lashes of a thousand comments in social media. We just condemn and shame. Paul doesn't do that. In love, he goes to Peter and says, what are you doing? You're not in line with the gospel. You say the gospel gives you the freedom to live like a Gentile. You're free from some of these specific laws. Mm -hmm. And now you're saying, oh, Gentiles, you have to actually obey those laws, which I've already begun to not obey? What a hypocrite you are. You've been living like a Gentile. You've been, you've been understanding these are over. Now that you're afraid of some people, you're back to bringing them in and telling the Gentiles they have to. What are you doing? You see, what Paul is doing is saying at the root of your problem is a gospel issue. Your problem isn't what you think it is. You think you need to add to the gospel these rules. What you really need to do is understand the gospel more deeply. So what does Paul do? Paul says, and you will see it in this second paragraph. He says, we know a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. There's the first time. Second time, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Third time, we're justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Three times Paul denies that your works, that your performance in any way can earn God's pleasure or justification. I'll define that in a minute. He says three times now in the Hebrew cultural of the day. To emphasize something, you don't put it in bold, you don't underline it, you don't italicize it, you repeat it. And if you want to make something of absolute highest emphasis, you repeat it three times. That's why the angel in Isaiah the angels in Isaiah say holy, holy, holy is the Lord. That's emphasis to the third degree here. Paul says, You're not justified by works of the law. By the works of the law, no one is justified. You're justified by faith, not by works. He can't make it any clearer. What he's saying is, We all need grace. We all fall short of God's perfect holy standard. Romans 3 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We don't love as we should, we don't serve others as we should. We're selfish. We're self-centered. We're sometimes cruel. And so God's good and holy standards we break. The desires he made for us to have to love and serve others we distort and corrupt. And so God's holy anger and judgment at sin and wrong is catalyzed by our own sin and wrong. And none of us deserves God's pleasure. We all need grace we're all sinners. Then Paul says twice, a person is justified through faith in Jesus Christ. We who have believed are justified by faith. Now, I want to stop for a minute and explain what that means. What does it mean to be justified? Here's some, some definitions of that Greek word. Here's some ways to take that word, that Greek word, and put it into English. It means to vindicate, to treat as just, to acquit to pronounce as right. You hear those words? Those are judicial words. They're the words of a law court. I remember my first case uh, in, in the practice of law, I was um, I told a court reporter it was my first case, apparently I think they whispered it to the judge who who loved to take down cocky uh, first-year lawyers. And so he looked at my case, he knew that I had a very strong case, the facts were on my client's side, and so he decided to have a little fun with me, you know? So I started asking questions and he kept mocking them and finally said, Mr. McDonald, you don't know how to actually question your own um, client. Sit down. Let me show you how it's done. So I sat down, and then he, he asked the questions I should have asked, totally humiliating me. I was the first case. All the other lawyers are chuckling while this happens. And then he says, Mr. McDonald, do you have anything to add to my questions? Oh, my gosh. So I would like, no, Your Honor. And he goes, Mr. McDonald, why are you still seated? Where did you go to law school? You are in front of the bench. No officer of the court disrespects the bench so much that they do not rise in respect when they talk to a judge. You get on your feet. So I got on my feet, shaking in my boots. Do you have anything, do you have anything else? No, 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 sit down. And then, you know, <laughs> after he completely humiliated me, showed my lack of advocacy skills, he declared us innocent of all the charges. Why? Because my client was in the right. And he was a just judge, although a bit of a masochist. (laughs) And he said, your client is judged to be in the right. He is justified. That's what it means to be justified, to be declared right in the highest court of law, the court of God himself. God looks at you and goes, you are in the right. I don't see anything wrong with you. But unlike my case, in God's case with us, we are guilty. We aren't in the right. He declares us to be right who are not right. How? Because he has poured out his judgment on our wrong already. You see, when you go before the court of, of God, you will have an advocate beside yourself named Jesus Christ who unlike me is the perfect righteous advocate. And he will go to the judge and go, Judge, my client is guilty, but I came down and I paid the price for his guilt and you already passed sentence on him or her and I bore it and I poured out my blood for it. There's no more penalty to be paid. Declare this person right and God will go justified. You have been declared right by the work that Jesus did on the cross. When he hung on the cross and said, and allowed the judgment against you to be poured out on him. And Paul is saying that gospel, that court of law is a court of grace. Where you are declared right By the grace of God and the sacrifice of his son. And therefore, you can't add anything of your own work to it. Because it's God's grace, this court. I remember going to the Art Institute of Chicago and seeing these original Van Goghs, which we're visiting. And I happened to be in Chicago. And I'm looking and there is a painting that I have a copy of on my wall, and it's so much more beautiful and so much more brilliant, you know, and and I'm I'm reaching out uh, almost as if I want to touch it, and, you know, uh, the security person grabs my arm, puts it down, says, no, son, we don't do that. I'm like, sorry, Your Honor, and then I thought to myself, what would it be like just to add, you know, a little bit of me into that, just make it a little more me? You know what, what I would do if I did that, right? I would ruin it for the rest of the world because it would no longer be Van Gogh it would be Van Gogh and the primitive sketchings of McDonald's. (laughs) I would have ruined a priceless masterpiece as soon as I added something to it. If you try and add to the matchless, perfect masterpiece of the work of Jesus Christ in living a perfect life for you, That attracts all of God's pleasure. And then going to the cross and taking God's judgment on your imperfect, sinful life and bearing it for you. So that God can look at you and go, I now judge you as right as Jesus was. Because he took your wrong. I will impute to you. I will account to you his right. That's matchless masterpiece. It is finished and it is accomplished. Don't add to it. Because if you add to it, you ruin it. Instead, point number two, go deeper into it. You see, there was an issue that they had as the Jewish circumcision party that was somewhat valid. Look at verse 17. You begin to see their argument. Doesn't sound valid, but I'll explain how it's kind of valid. See in verse seventeen, it says, "But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin?" That's the argument of this Jewish circumcision party. If 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 it's that easy, justification by faith, God just loves me because Jesus died for me, and that's it, I am justified. Then what? is actually going to sperm us on and motivate us to holiness. In this case, their specific charge is Christ is a servant of sin because he's taken Peter, a good Jewish guy, made him believe, and then, and then Peter, listening to Paul's gospel, which is wrong, has stopped obeying the purity laws. He's not as holy as he could be. So let's just give him that faith and make him go back to doing the purity laws. And it's a, it's a both and. And you see, that's the way most of us think. We walk around thinking, here's the finished work of Jesus Christ. And he has completely justified me. Now, what should I do to add to it? How do I mature in my faith? Because it's about me being able to measure me as I grow in my progress. Do you see the problem? Me, me. Me, I. And what Paul says is look, you want to do that? Let me tell you what you're doing. Look at verse 18. If I rebuild what I tore down, if I start building a performance based spirituality after it got torn down by the gospel, I prove myself to be a transgressor. I prove myself to be someone who doesn't really love God. You know why? Because I'm functionally going up to Jesus and I'm saying, oh, you came down from heaven, that's nice. You became fully human, that's nice. You got rejected by humans, that's nice. You got falsely accused. You got interrogated, tortured, and hung on a cross for me. You paid for all my sins, that's nice. But it's not enough. How dishonoring it is to the to God the Son for you to say, your life, your death, and your resurrection for me is not enough. That is a transgressor indeed. How dare you say that to the God who gave himself for you? Now, the Jewish people, however, had a legitimate problem from their own theological point of view. Leviticus 11 had said... This is what you're supposed to do to obey God. And Leviticus is part of the Bible, and the Bible has enduring vitality and enduring truth. So what are we supposed to do about the enduringly true Old Testament? And what we have to learn about the New Testament is that some parts of the Old Testament are eternally, abidingly true. The Ten Commandments. Don't murder. Don't bear false witness. Don't covet. I am the Lord thy God. Don't make a... These things are abiding and eternally true. But some parts of the Old Testament are over because Jesus fulfilled them. The book of Hebrews says the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament, all those animals that died for the forgiveness of the sins of the people of God, they're done. Because Jesus Christ made one full, final, and eternally sufficient sacrifice for everybody, not just the Jewish people, but for anybody who would believe. That part of the Old Testament, over. And so the question that that arose here is, these dietary holiness laws, are they over like the sacrificial laws, or do they keep going like the Ten Commandments and the moral law? And what Paul wants to say is they too are over. Those laws of separation have come to an end because Christ has come. Now here's something that the modern church needs to hear because functionally we do something similar all the time. We actually have a a good theology. We don't think we need to fulfill the... The purity laws, we think we're allowed to eat bacon if we want to. Most of us don't for health reasons. Uh, I happen to think that I'd rather die quickly, so I eat a lot of bacon. Uh, I want to see Jesus faster and eat a lot of bacon. It's a both-and for me. I don't know what your problem is. (laughs) However, this is what we do do. I've been forgiven by Jesus, but I want to be a mature Christian. I don't know how to measure that. So I'm going to find some measurements for that. And so we give people measurable X, Y, and Z to follow so they can chart their measurements and their maturity. And those are usually activities, conferences to go to, books to read, knowledge to have, regular prayer times of a certain intensity and kind to experience. They're not the Jewish purity laws. We're way more sophisticated, so we think. But this is what happens. The average modern churchgoer, and I mean the average modern churchgoer that I'm looking at right now, you go around with a running list of things that you should be doing daily, weekly, and things you should be avoiding daily, weekly, and you're kind of walking around with a running performance review of yourself going on and modifying all the time. Now, part of this isn't terrible. We need to sift. What things we should do and what things we shouldn't do. Some parts of the culture are wonderful, like our concern for the marginalized. Some parts of our culture are not so wonderful. Sex slavery, for example. But are we called to walk around all the time with this running, shifting performance review saying, how am I doing with God you know, the last 38 minutes? Because I should have done this and I didn't do that. Is that what God wants us to do? Because literally when I talk to you, that's what we do. And what I want to say is you're looking at someone who does it way worse than you. This is what I do all the time. And Paul says, having accepted the gospel of grace, are you now functionally rebuilding the performance treadmills of performing for God? That's sinful, that's presumptuous, and that is fatal to your walk with God. So Paul says, don't don't add, go deeper. Now this is how you go deeper. Ready, here it is. Verse 19, for through the law I died to the law that I might live to God. I died to the law, it no longer can condemn me. I've been justified. There's something else going on here. I died to the law's power to condemn me, but I now have the power to live to God. Something powerful has been unleashed. And Then he explains it. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul's saying here what he said in Romans 6. The gospel doesn't just justify you, give you a sentence of innocent, righteous, and forgiven. It unites you to Jesus Christ. You see, when you become a Christian, the spirit of Jesus comes into you. Christ lives in me. A new day has come in Jesus. I died to the old way of being anxious and wondering if I could perform and the running performance review. When Jesus came and died, that whole way of relating to God, paying rent to keep him happy, is gone. It is finished. Instead, his spirit comes into my soul. And two things happen. One, when God sees me, I'm justified. He sees me as if I'm Jesus, holy, innocent, righteous, all my sins forgiven, yes. But two, when I see God, I am united to him, and I see him in a completely different way. I see life in a completely different way, and I see sin in a completely different way. Constantine Campbell points out that union with Christ throughout all of Paul's theology talks about three different things. The way we view God, our status, the way we view our world, our perspective, and the way we view our sin, power. Status, perspective, and power. The way we view God now that we are united to God. I'm his beloved child. He loves me unconditionally. I can come to him confidently i can come to him unashamedly i can come to him with joy no matter how screwed up i've been because it's by grace that our relationship was built secondly perspective on your world if i've been united to jesus his spirit will begin to give me the eyes of jesus to my life i will look at power money pleasure in a different way than the world does because the world runs after them thinking that these things will make us feel whole. But Jesus looked at those and went, those things are empty. They will fool you and fail you. Don't run after them. Jesus was the one who came to this world from somewhere else and, and said, this world is not my home. And when the Spirit of God is unleashed in you, more and more it says, this world, it's not your home. What it purports to give you is empty. It won't satisfy you. When you're you're united to Jesus, his Spirit will make you feel vastly differently about your family. You'll look at other Christians and go, you're my brother and sister, because that's what Jesus said. Who's my brother and sister? Those who have faith in me. Not just, not my blood relations. Those who are united by faith, other Christians. It's the whole point that Paul wants Peter to get. Can't you see? You're united to Christ. You should see we're all one family. How can you be dividing? New destiny. The Spirit of God will give you an understanding of your future. I one day am going to inherit a brand new sinless, perfect, uncorrupted world. And I'm going to live eternally with all the pleasures and all the joys awaiting me. And it's sure. So I don't have to run after my bucket list. Sure, I can enjoy the things that come, but I don't have to be driven to accomplish and experience all the things that my culture tells me. I'm free from that. You see what happens? Your status to God changes. You're a beloved child. You go with confidence, lack of shame, total joy. But your perspective on your world begins to conform itself to Jesus's as his spirit works in and through you. And finally, power. You have power over your sin. You look at your sin. In light of the love God has given you and you look at your sin and you go, oh, that desire, that coveting of that house In Forest Hill, I used to just nurse that. I used to let it drive my career. But that sin is killing me and Christ died for it. I need to see it as it really is. It's shackles that's taking my freedom away and taking my joy away and making me covet and making me treat people differently. So what happens? when you're united to Christ and you realize you have this beloved status to God, you have this brand new perspective on the world, you see the world as Jesus sees it, and you experience it as Jesus tells you to, and then you have this power over your sin, and you don't like your sin anymore, and you just want to walk away from it and be free from it, then you have inside-out spirituality from the Spirit of God stirring up your heart, and you totally agree with it. With With the what the Jewish party here was doing was giving you outside-in spirituality. Here are the regulations. Follow them. But that's not holiness. Tell me whenever someone has given you a rule to follow and it has created a power in you to want to follow it. Never happened. You know what happens when people say, you must do this? What happens? (laughs) Yeah? (laughs) No, dang right I'm not going to do that. It creates in you a desire not to. Because rules and regulations outside in spirituality is always that. It's powerless. Paul will say in Romans 6 and 7, the law was good but had no power to make you holy. But when you're united to Christ and live by faith, you have the power in you. But you have to accept that power is there. You have to receive it and unleash it. I was, um, uh, I was getting married to my beloved and uh, some people came around me to help me because I had no money uh, to construct a honeymoon. And so someone gave me a tickets to Europe, Zurich. And then uh, they also had a friend in Zurich who was a doctor and that doctor had a cottage who they contacted, and that person gave us a week of free cottaging in the Alps. And then they knew someone else who I knew who was a friend of mine, and they got us a pensiones in Italy at a steep discount and rental cars through some, I don't know, travel agents, whiz-bang magic at about 40% of the normal price. And I got this incredible honeymoon given to me for about a tenth of what it should have cost. But by faith, I had to unleash all those gifts. By faith, I had to go to the airport, thinking these tickets were valid. By faith, I had to find this address in Zurich, and we had to take the taxi and knock on a complete stranger's door and hope that they were actually who they said they were, and they were, you know. And then they showed us to the train, and then, you know, and it was all as it had been promised, but it was faith that took and received this great gift and gave us this great honeymoon. By faith, you've not only gotten forgiveness of sins, but you've been united to Jesus. The Spirit is in you, and a power is resident in you to live the kind of mature holy life that these Jewish people were aspiring to and had no idea they could never get there through these rules and this outside-in spirituality. Your sins are forgiven. You've been justified. Your old life is crucified and God has united you to himself through the spirit of God. You have been united. These two things both happen when you have faith in Jesus. Faith is enough. Because the whole life of Christianity is a life of faith in the gracious God who gave his son to you and now gives his spirit to you. If you are here and you are curious about the Christian faith, this is what is offered to you in the gospel. Not only forgiveness for your sins, but the power of total transformation of you. Christian, this is what is offered to you. Not only total forgiveness of sins, but the power of total transformation. The gospel is deeper than you think. You don't need to add to it. You just need to plunge deeper into it. Stop trying to get off your back by doing good works as the rent you pay. Good works are not the rent you pay to God to make him happy. They are the expressions of your love to a God who has put the spirit of Jesus within you and forgiven you and justified you, and they come out from you in adoration from the inside out. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, and I ask that you would help us to stay laser focused on the reality that the good works that we are to do are a result of the great work you have already done in Jesus by justifying us through his death and uniting us to him in his resurrection and sending of the spirit we love you help us not to add to the gospel, but to go deeper into it. For there is the power and the beauty and the maturity that you call us to have. We pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, I have um, 15 questions. (laughs) Not a hope. Uh, I'm not exactly sure. Faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. What do I do uh, with that? How do you reconcile that with Paul's gospel message? That is Paul's gospel message. You see, what we miss about Galatians is how it reconciles so beautifully with James. What is Paul saying to Peter? You say you have faith, but look at your actions. They're not in line with the gospel. If you believe in the gospel of grace alone then the Spirit will come into you. If the Spirit comes into you, He will start making you want to do good works as a response. If there are no good works as a response, it's okay to ask if the Spirit is there. When the gospel comes into you, it flows out of you. It will. Great question. Same question we had first service. If we're not called to live the Christian life as a performance review, why are we commanded to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith? Because those are vastly different things. To examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith is to make sure that you actually believe that Jesus died for you, and you believe it, and therefore you are justified, and his spirit is in you. That's it. It's the baseline question. Do I actually believe Jesus? This moment-by-moment performance review isn't do I believe that Jesus did this for me? It's, how am I doing with God? How am I doing with God? How am I doing with God? They're vastly different things. We are to examine ourselves to make sure we're Christians. But we're not to examine exactly how mature and moment by moment we are. That's just a recipe for anxiety. How do you know for sure your faith is 100% with God but not with worldly things? See, that question is a perfect example of the self-performance review that I'm Exactly talking about That's what I do all the time. If your faith is as small as a mustard seed, but it's in the right person, you're justified. Four-year-olds can have justifying faith in Jesus, and their faith isn't as mature as 40-year-olds, but it justifies them all the same because it's not the strength and perfection of your faith. Your faith will never be what it should be. The object of your faith, he will always be more than enough for everything you need. What is your take on the relationship between the Ten Commandments and Christian faith? I thought I was pretty clear, but let me make it clear again. The Ten Commandments are are part of the abiding moral law of God. That's the part of the Old Testament that continues in perpetuity. Jesus did not come to get rid of that law. He actually obeyed the Ten Commandments for you, because you can't. Now, the Ten Commandments are still there for you, because you have become a Christian, and you go, okay, God, thank you. Your love language to me is unbelievable. It's Jesus, what's, what's my love language back to you? How do I make you feel loved? Then he goes, follow, follow my commandments. Don't murder, don't kill, love me. Here, here's the way, here's the path. Here's the path, you see this path? This is the path that you walk, to make God know that you love Him. That path is called His commandments, the Ten Commandments, the commandments of Christ. That's the direction. That's the way to express. I told you last week or two weeks ago, my wife had a way for me to express my love to her, make her coffee in the morning. If I don't make her coffee, do I I stop paying the rent? Does she stop loving me? No. But she said, you want to make me feel loved? Do this for me. God says, do you want to make me feel your response of love to what I've done? Obey these commands. They are the way we go. They're the path we take. They are the direction we follow by the Holy Spirit motivating us to love Him in response to His love for us. And now we're going to go, sorry, I can't answer the other nine questions. You can come to me later. But now we have to go and remind ourselves of the depth of God's grace because Jesus Christ on the last day that he had supper with his disciples, broke bread. It's called the last supper. (laughs) He broke bread and he said, this is my body which is given for you. He poured out his body. He let his body be broken in love to pay the price for your sin. A Little while later, he held up a cup and he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood just given for you. And by which he meant the, the cup of wine symbolized his blood that would be poured out. His body would be broken. His blood would be shed to pay the price that God's justice demanded so you could get justified. And Jesus said of his bread and of this cup, he said, do this in memory of me. Take and eat. Drink ye all of it. And we are now going to do that. We're going to remember and we're going to participate in the grace that God poured out through what's called communion or the Lord's table. If you're here and you're a baptized believer in Jesus, this is for you. It's not our table, it's his. If you're here and you are still investigating the Christian faith, look at the prayers in the bulletin. Allow them to give you a sense of where you are. And If you want to come to faith, you come talk to your friend who brought you, come to me afterwards love to help introduce you to Jesus. But for those baptized believers, this is our chance to participate with him in the grace that he poured out. Let's come rejoicing that we don't need to do anything but have faith. Faith is enough. It justifies you and it unites you to God and Christ. Let me pray and after I've prayed, the table will be open. All of the bread is gluten free and the wine is darker than the grape juice. Take it as it gets passed to you and eat and drink of it in your own time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this food and for this cup. We pray that it would be real food for our souls, that we would take a moment now and meditate on the unconditional grace of God in Christ, that we would eat and drink with joy, that our faith is enough. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Tables open.